Okay, a couple of things I want to talk about before we talk about fishing. The uh, Several of you asked where I was and what I was doing last week. You uh, saw the, my Facebook posts, or uh, uh, Jason Ardell, I had lunch with him in Atlanta. I was in Atlanta. Once a year, uh, a bunch of societies get together um, for conferences. A lot of people wonder how pastors and professors and scholars, what, what, what do we do to grow? We do a lot of research, first of all. Uh, Mark and I are reading and discussing actively. We're probably doing that 20 hours a week. Uh, just researching backgrounds to the Bible, all kinds of interesting things to us. And um, so these societies get together once a year just before Thanksgiving, and it's a place for all of us to gather. Depending on the society, there's anywhere from 600 to 10,000 members. Um, so there's... Evangelical Theological Society, Institute for Biblical Research, Society of Biblical Literature, American Academy of Religion, uh, American Philosophical Society. We all get together at the same place for a week, eight to ten days of uh, discussion, theological papers being read. So imagine, just imagine, this is about as close to heaven as you're going to get. Okay, imagine eight hours to ten hours a day of hearing people read papers on theology. Am I right? You want to go to that, don't you? Oh, come on. Every, yeah, everybody's shaking their head no. What's with that? Well, those, some of us absolutely love it. So what they do is they read a paper for a half hour, and then we have a discussion about it. And we get to ask questions, interject, dialogue. It's, it's the modern version of what's called what was thought of as the old village green in the medieval period, where people would get together in the middle of the town and discuss ideas. That's what scholars do. So I had a chance to go, I go every year, and uh, be challenged and listen uh, and dialogue and uh, ask questions and learn things. And there's every kind of study group you can possibly imagine on how to approach the scriptures, and we get to pick. So for those of you that prayed for me, thank you. But that's where I was all week, doing that. All right, um, on the back of your bulletin, some things I want to call attention to. You'll see at the very top, family night, and a little bit down lower on, the, the same night, the Dillontown Lighting. This Thursday at 5.30 here at the church is the Dillontown Lighting. Choral concert, it's a fun time. If you didn't go last year, you should come. It's, uh, the place is packed. It's just crazy. It's a zoo. Second thing I want you to see is the DCC Ladies Brunch this Thursday. Um, what's the stuff the pastor does? How come I don't know about that? Nope, they asked me to come. And it's a chance to come and just ask questions, so come be a part of it. Down at the bottom, the hospitality ministry needs you. We have Christmas Eve coming. By the way, do you like, the, do you like what they've done? Advent? Isn't this great? <laughs> it's one of these things that will grow from week to week, I suspect, knowing Mark and the rest of them. Uh, but it's getting us ready for Advent. Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve service, for those of you that have not been here, we have somewhere between 800 and 1,000 typically that show up. We have two services, four and six. This place is packed. If you want to sit in here, you have to get here early. I'm just saying, I've learned that. Um, if not, you'll be sitting in the commons. We'll have a complete setup over there, very much like this one, and uh, you'll uh, with the screens and everything. And sometimes we have people in the narthex. To pull this off and to make this happen, we need volunteers. So please think about doing that. And then finally, this morning, for those of you that did check your email, you should have gotten an Advent email. 
Uh, we, we, the staff and elders, wrote devotions from today all the way through Christmas. One a day. You get one a day just to help you think about things and to learn a little bit about our staff and elders. If you did not get an email from us, that means we don't have your email. Outside in the Welcome Center is a place that you can sign up and give us your email if you want that, okay? And we'll send it to you. So that's what's going on. Today I'd like to take just a moment <coughs> and lift up uh, the people of Colorado Springs. I think by now you've, most of you have heard about the shooter um, at the Planned Parenthood uh, facility there. Bunch of people, bunch of people have been seriously wounded and three were killed. And um, I don't understand, to be honest with you, I don't understand that kind of hatred, what would cause it. I've already read some of the news feeds that some, you know, they're saying that they're uh, fundamental Christians. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I hope that's not how we represent ourselves. That's not what we're called to be, is it? But those people are struggling. I want to pray for them. I'd also like to lift up our singles. As we head into Advent, uh, for the singles that we have here that don't have family around and can't afford to go home, this is a tough time of year. In some respects, it's a fun time. You get to do a lot of skiing and stuff like that. But it's, it's a hard time to remember, especially if they come from families where Advent was an important part of their tradition. So I'd like to pray for them. One of the seminars that I attended was by a man who was a single, committed to a celibate lifestyle. And he, he did a paper on, a, on a, the theology of celibacy and how the church really needs to do a better job of developing that. He got my attention because um, he spoke as a single what it was like being a single. But he, he made a comment that just overwhelmed me. When we get to heaven, Jesus said there won't be any marriage in heaven. In other words, our relationships are so solid and so safe and so secure with each other and with the Lord that marriage uh, is not a requirement. We don't need it. Therefore, our singles today that live, that choose to live a celibate lifestyle and are living a faithful life, they become for us a symbol of the eternal community. They're the closest we can come to seeing it. And it's like, huh. I hadn't even thought about that. So I went out with one of my friends, a scholar, uh, single her whole life. She's now 72. We went out to lunch. And so what would you think about that? And she said, it's right. It's true. The first 10 years were hard because our whole culture said we should get married. And she said, and I, I wanted to be faithful and serve the Lord uh, without getting married. She's a missionary. goes around the world serving. Still, at 72, and she said, once I got past the first 10 years, I can tell you it's one of the most joyful experiences in the world. And uh, so we can look at our singles that are living lives of faith, celibate lives of faith, and get a glimpse, just a glimpse, of what could happen. So I want to pray for them as well. So let's lift up the, these two things. Father, I do pray for uh, Colorado Springs the people there in Colorado Springs. Lord, again, I don't know what would cause so much hurt and so much anger in a person to want to take lives. So foreign to my thinking. But, uh, Lord, I, uh, <clears throat> you understand it. I pray for the people that have lost someone in this, uh, the three that died. I pray that you would be merciful to them, help them as they grieve. I pray for those with uh, loved ones who are just barely hanging on to life, that you would show them mercy and compassion as well. Uh, thank you, Lord, for being a God that we can come to and ask on behalf of our fellow countrymen someplace else, knowing that you will help them. And, Lord, I do lift up our singles in our church. 
And Father, during this time especially, that you would honor them, uh, love them dearly, you would show them grace, and uh, you would show them fulfillment, Lord, uh, as they learn to trust you more and more each day. And uh, as a congregation, Lord, help us to be sensitive to them, to reach out and uh, love them as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, when I was... uh, when I was at Denver Seminary, before I came up here, my last job, one of the things I had to do was I had to do a lot of work with donors, and so I had to learn how to fly fish. I know, tough job. Don't feel too sorry for me, okay? Uh, I fly fish down there, and here I come up and ski. Some of my friends are saying, how do you get these jobs? And uh, so I've never fly fished before, and so the seminary hired a professional fly fisherman to teach me how to fly fish. So he spent a lot of time with me, for uh, off and on for three years. And um, so we went out onto the grass at the, the kind of the quad of the seminary where we started to practice. And I said, where's the water? And he said, well, you're not ready for the water yet. <laughs> so we got the rod out and put it all together and showed me how to do that. And, and then we started, you know, casting. Oh, okay, first of all, let's work on where the wrist goes. Okay, let's figure this out here. Okay, now let's work on the angle of the arm and let's work on this. So here we are doing this looking like idiots, I felt, you know, and all the students were walking by just laughing at us and giving us a hard time. So then pretty soon I got to hold a rod and do this. And then after I did enough of that, then I got to have one with um, line in it, (laughs) okay? Then I got to put a weight on it and cast to the grass. Uh, And I did that, we did that three or four times, three or four days before he let me get out in the water. Then he wouldn't let me bring a donor along until I had like four or five fishing trips behind me so that I wouldn't embarrass the seminary when I get out there with people that actually know what they're doing, which several of you do, by the way, and I figured that out. So I, re- I remember getting my first fish. It was about this big, okay? <laughs> it was actually about like this. <laughs> but it was still exciting. <laughs> yes, I did it, I did it. And I got better and better. What I took away from that <clears throat> was there's a lot of little detail. There's a lot of preparation to know how to fish well. And he fished with me for three years and kept teaching me. There's a lot of little details. Okay, now remember that because we're going to come back to that when Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of people. There's work to be done. Work to be done. Today we start Advent, so first Sunday, the appearing of the Messiah. We asked you throughout the last few weeks if you were prepared for the coming of the Messiah. It's here. The time is here. Our children and youth will lead us through this each week. Each week we're going to focus on a different geographical region. You saw what the children did. By the way, I want you to know as a church that uh, the last series, Mark prepared it. He designed it. This series was prepared by Annika and Val Stock. And um, so when you see them, tell them thank you. I love bringing our staff in and say, here, you do the series. What do you want to do? So Val and Annika designed this whole thing. My job was to was to take the theological pieces of what they're doing and make sense of it. That's my job. Uh, starting in January, Stefan Sealing is designing the series starting in uh, January. So each of the staff members, I give them chances throughout the year to, to prepare us to bring the message to you. All right. As we move through Advent each week, my desire is to bring to you a gift that has to do with something with the life of Jesus, something that happened in his life that is a gift for you, all right? So you can make sense of it. All right, in Mark, 
the first, uh, you, we read the Matthew account, they read it for us, so we're not going to spend time in Matthew, we're going to spend time in Mark. So you can get a little bit of a comparison here. In Mark, the first recorded act of Jesus was not something sensational. What do we know Jesus as? When we think of Jesus, we typically think of miracles, don't we? Or we think of these very profound and very wonderful teaching times, but that's not the first thing Mark portrays of Jesus, his actions. The first thing Jesus did was to summon four common laborers, common fishermen into his ministry. That's the very first thing he did. Um, in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we have a very, pow- in fact, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. That's how Mark starts. By the way, in about March, we're going to spend uh, several weeks in Mark. We're going to work our way through Mark for about 10 weeks um, and look at the servant king, Jesus, because we need to know who he is. So Mark starts by saying the beginning of the good news, the gospel. What is the good news? What is it? It's the fact that God did not forget us. He came back for us. He sacrificed himself for us. He did the most wonderful thing. He gave us free will after he created us. You choose. Is there anything more dignifying to say to someone else? You choose. Isn't it a wonderful thing when your kids get to the age where you can start saying, you choose. In fact, it becomes a great parenting device. Do you want to do this or do you want to do this? You give them two choices, they don't even think about the third one. If you don't give them a choice, they often want one that you don't give them, right? So it gets to a point, say, would you like to do this or would you like to do that? And they get to choose. It's one of the greatest gifts God has given us, this freedom of choice. And we chose the wrong thing. We rebelled. No question about it. Terrible, tragic, wonderful, beautiful failure in every way you can measure And that's what happened. So God could have been done with us. It's easy for God just to make another group of people, but I think he would have been faced with the same problem. Instead, he chose something very gracious and loving. No, these are my creation. These are my children. I'm going to go after them. And I'm going to woo them back into a relationship with me. That's the good news. He did not forget us. He remembered us. And he came back when he could have discarded us, and he chose not to. So then in verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, this fantastic news that we should tell all of our neighbors about. Then verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter, by the way, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once or immediately they left their nets and followed him. The other Gospels tell us that they left their fathers, they left their hired hands, they left their businesses behind. Immediately they dropped everything and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him too. So he's got two pairs of brothers, four guys that dropped everything and followed him. All right. Before we dig into this, let me survey the background a little bit. The Sea of Galilee was about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. It's in Galilee. That's why it's called the Sea of Galilee. It's about 7 miles wide, 13 miles long. It was situated about 700 feet below sea level. So way down there from where we stand. The shoreline where Jesus most likely found these four 
was a mass of broken black basalt, hard, hard stuff. It's very difficult to walk on it, and it's very difficult to beach a boat on it. So when you see the language of Jesus getting into the boat, moving out a ways so he could speak to the crowds, picture that. And uh, you, you saw that, I think, in one of the pictures up there. It's very hard to walk on. So the text tells us that Simon, Peter, and Andrew were casting a, na- a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. So th- I thought about trying to cast this out over the first couple of rows. I think I'll pass. All right? The net that they would use, it was, about, it was circular. It was about 20 feet in diameter. And along the edges, they would tie metal bars or rocks. Okay? So they would, become, they would get adept enough so they could throw the net. And, and the verb even used here in the text is they would spin it, if you will. And it would float out like a parachute out onto the water. And then it would sink and capture the fish inside of it. In fact, if you look on the very front of your bulletin, there's a picture of it right there. You can see them casting these round nets. So it would land, though it would throw it into the water. He would wade out into water and throw it. Like a parachute, it would sink and trap the fish as it sank. The fishermen would then dive down, gather up the rocks, and pull the net together and haul the fish to shore. That's probably what was happening in this particular passage. Um, In the Luke passage, they're portrayed as being on a boat, which is probably a little bit later, maybe just a few days later on. Now they're out in the boat fishing, so they did both types of fishing. During the first century, fishing was a thriving industry. There were at least 16 ports on this small lake. Uh, Josephus... A Jewish historian tells us that during the war with Rome in 68 AD, he gathered a, 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 a fleet of fishing boats to fight. There were 260 of them on this small lake. This lake was a very good fishing hole. That's what it comes down to. Fish was a staple food of the Greco-Roman world. Fish from the Sea of Galilee was especially desired. And it was exported as all the way to Alexandria in Egypt and Antioch in Syria. Again, Jew, uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that the sea had pure sweet water and many species of fish. And the fish out of this lake were in demand. So this is in the northern region. This is where Jesus was near Capernaum. And he's teaching, and he walks down to the seashore, and he says, follow me. Okay, the fishermen whom Jesus called were obviously businessmen. To have that many people on the lake and to make their living off of that shows something about that. And the Gospels tell us they had hired hands, they had businesses, they, were, they owned the boats. They were not just your simple indigent day laborers. These were very shrewd and successful businessmen. They understood fishing. That's what they understood. They had their own business. So here's the first question. What would cause these successful businessmen to drop their businesses, Luke 5.11 says they, they dropped everything and walked away. What would cause them to do that? Especially for someone who they didn't know who he was. They hadn't figured that out yet. They knew he was a teacher. They even called him a rabbi. One of the brothers said, I think I found a rabbi. But he'd been probably been teaching around in the area for just a few, a little bit of time, not very long. But they didn't know he was the Messiah. They certainly didn't know he was God incarnate. That is the story of the Gospels. They're coming to faith over time. So what would cause these men, these four men, 
to drop everything, leave it behind, and follow this man. Hmm. Well, let me give you some thoughts. Let me kind of paint the background a little bit and then look at specifically what Jesus said in that context. In the first century world, uh, not anybody could be a disciple of any of the, of the of any of the great teachers. So you know we have Gamaliel mentioned; he was one. Others are mentioned. So the great teachers created schools, uh, and you would apply to the school. But in order to apply, you had to demonstrate some level of knowledge. In other words, you were prepared for. They were typically teenagers, fifteen to sixteen years old, when they applied. And uh, these teachers of Israel, they had their pick. They had their pick of the students from all across the nation. And so parents would raise their children from birth to be considered a disciple of a great teacher, one of the teachers, because that was a career profession. That's what it was. The teachers could charge money. And so it's, it's a career profession like fishing was in some respects. So I went to seminary, as you know, got a doctorate. I wanted to learn as much as I could so I could be effective in Christian ministry. That's the career path I chose. That's the career path they would choose. Very similar to what we do today. And um, in fact, I, I often like to, when I'm in the classroom, uh, have a little fun with our educational system in America. If we were to apply our educational philosophy to the Bible, here's what it would look like. You're getting ready to offer a class in discipleship. It's going to be 15 weeks long, semester. It's a three-hour class. You have to pay 1500 bucks to get into it. You're going to have a final exam, a midterm, uh, a presentation, two papers to write, and quizzes each week. And if you manage to pass with a B or higher, we'll let you interview to be a disciple. But that's not what Jesus did. He just walked up to these four common fishermen and said, come follow me. I will make you fishers of people. And they dropped everything. The answer has to lie within the realm of honor. Because to be considered a disciple in Jewish culture was a very great honor. These men didn't have that opportunity. They weren't raised from birth. They probably hadn't memorized whole sections of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch. They were much older by now. Life had passed them by. They didn't stand a chance. No way they could even be accepted. And here comes a teacher. They knew he was a teacher. says, come follow me. And so they did. What a surprise that he didn't walk up and sit down on a rock and have him sit down and start teaching them like the other teachers did. That's not what he did, did he? What did he do? <clears throat> he started healing people who were sick. He wasn't afraid to become unclean. He would touch a dead body. He would take a dead person. Paul and Peter did that next. They didn't mind becoming unclean. He went to Zacchaeus' house. He didn't mind becoming unclean for our benefit. He didn't mind showing grace to a woman caught in adultery, did he? He didn't mind touching lepers, healing paralytics. What a surprise. Because they expect, like all the teachers, you sit, I'm the teacher. I teach, you learn. That's not the way he did it. I suspect, based on the questioning in the Gospels, somewhere along the way, 
they got the message, this is not normal. And they finally said, okay, we give up. What does it mean to be a disciple? That's what the Gospels are all about, which is why we're going to take a close look at Mark. What does it mean to be a disciple? You're not doing anything that all the other disciples are doing. Teachers aren't doing this. You're, you're doing it very odd, very unusual. And the Gospels then record the story. So you begin to have sayings like, you want to be my disciple? Take up your cross. Follow me. What's the message? Be willing to go through the most excruciating torture you could ever imagine possible. That's the message. Wow, what a surprise. I thought we were going to be able to earn money and have respect in a high position in society. No, 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 it's just the opposite. You want to be first? Then you have to be last. I love James and John. They're heroes of mine. When they asked Jesus, can we be on your left and on your right when you enter into your kingdom, into your glory? And Jesus said, you sure you want that? Yeah, yeah, we do. And he says, well, that's up to my father to decide. But uh, okay, you want it? You got it. You are going to pay the price. Right after that, he's on the cross. And guess who's on his left and his right when he enters into his kingdom? Two thieves. Where's James and John? Nowhere to be found. They're gone. You sure you want that? They didn't know what they signed up for. You get it? Most of you didn't know what you signed up for when you became Christians, did you? Imagine if we said, okay, I'd like to invite you to become a Christian. You're going to have to die an excruciating death. Okay? You, uh, you have to give up everything. Uh, you have to suffer shame, humiliation. You have to be mocked and persecuted uh, because God's going to take your life and you're to be going to become his billboard. That's what's going to happen for him. So, what do you think? You came? Wow. And yet, that's, what's, that's what your life is about, isn't it? Now, the Lord could have done it this way. He says, I want you to become a believer, and here's what I'm going to do. I want you to trust me, and I'm going to use you for my glory so that your neighbors and friends and family will get a chance to see the truth. So you are going to suffer because that is a language they will understand, and we want to speak in their language. But if you trust me, it's going to be fine. Now it sounds a little different. These four men, I don't think they had a clue what they were walking into, what they were getting into. So what does Jesus do? We learn several things about Jesus' call. Number one, and this may surprise you because it's so intuitively obvious, is that it's Jesus who is the one who did the calling. Come follow me. He was very different than all the rabbis and the scribes in Judaism because every school you had to demonstrate initiative, much like our college system today. Fill out applications, pay money, get references, have good grades. You have to convince the school that you're the right student for them. Jesus did it just the opposite. He went after them and said, come follow me. It was a commitment to a person rather than a system. Come be my disciple. Come follow me. So Jesus changed all that. He called them to himself. No prerequisite, no exam, no level of knowledge required. You will learn everything you need to know by following Jesus. 
everything you need to know. By the way, we go to seminary. That doesn't make us pastors. That's not what makes us pastors at all. They teach us skills. My very first seminary professor said, if you think for one second we're going to make you a pastor, you're wrong. We'll teach you how to study the Bible. But whether or not you become a pastor is between you and the Lord. If you think that you're going to go tell an 80-year-old how to bury his wife, you're going to learn how hard it is to be a pastor. You're going to learn what it means to sit with people that have lost children, lost spouses. By the way, Lauren Fisher says hello. I had coffee with her this week. Lost her husband. Only time will tell if you become a pastor. You have to live a life of faith, and maybe, just maybe, the Lord will use you that way. That's how Mark and I think. Okay? What else do we learn about Jesus? It was a call to service and sacrifice. I will send you out to fish for people. Following Jesus requires a fundamental change in perspective. You will be different when you turn to the Lord because you now become the Lord's useful tool to reach the rest of the world. I will make you fishers of people. Now, that doesn't mean they left their businesses and families. That doesn't mean we have to. Because as the New Testament unfolds, what we discover as being a fisher of people is, is it's an idea that fits right where you are. I don't care what your profession is, whether you have a career, whether you stay at home and raise children, man or wife, a man or woman, whether you, whatever you do, whether you're in high school, it doesn't matter. That's what your calling is, to be a fisher of people. That gets, that, that is the, the idea that makes sense now of your career. You're not only there to do your job. You're there to reflect the glory of the Lord. You become a mirror and you reflect the glory of the Lord and you begin to catch people by the way you live your life. Nothing wrong with businesses and families. That's how the, the, gets the, gospel, the glory of the Lord gets spread. Another thing we learn is that he spoke in language that they would understand, fishing. They understand fishing. When God spoke to Abraham, did he talk about fishing? No, what did he do with Abraham? Took him out under the stars. Why? He's Chaldean. They're stargazers. All the way through the Bible, when we see God speak, he speaks to people in language they understand. If I could get a mic up here and get every one of you to come share your testimony, every one of you would have a different approach a different way of finding the Lord. Every one of you. But what would be common was that God spoke to you in language you understood. It made sense to you. So to these four men, he's talking fishing. Fishing for people is a highly unusual metaphor. It doesn't exist in any Jewish literature at all. None. Jesus saw what they were doing and said, They'll understand this. It's appropriate in that it's highly incarnational, if I can use a technical term. Highly incarnational means that you become Jesus to someone else. It's person to person. It's you reaching out and catching someone. In Luke 5, I'm not going to read the whole account, but I want you to listen to these wonderful words because this is where we find ourselves. This is probably a little bit later on, a few days anyway. Later on, now they're in a boat. When Jesus had finished speaking, I'm in Luke 5, 4, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for, catch, to, for a catch. So Peter, I love Peter, 
Master, we have worked hard all night and we haven't caught a single thing. But because you say so, (laughs) we'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, listen to these words. He fell on his knees. He fell on his knees and he says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Now, he had probably already heard Jesus' words in Mark, and he's making sense of all this. But listen to what happens. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Jesus said to them, or said to Simon, this is what we expect. You are a sinful person. You're right. This is what he says. Don't be afraid. Have we heard those words before? Remember two weeks ago I told you this is the most, uh, the most often repeated command in the Bible? Don't be afraid. So when Simon Peter finally woke up and said, Lord, get away. I'm not worthy. I'm a sinful person. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. That's your life calling. By the way, that's your life calling. So in Luke, what comes through here is just this overflowing grace. No exposure, no confrontation, no demands that he do anything. He just says, don't be afraid. That's what we find when we step into the Lord's presence. You never have to be afraid to step into the presence of the Lord. You don't have to be. Don't be afraid. So Jesus commissions Peter to catch people the same way, by grace. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that learning to fish, there's a lot of details in here, right? Well, the cool, the wonderful, the neat thing about what Jesus did was that you don't have to go to school to figure it out. You learn everything you need to know by following Jesus and by looking at his lifestyle. He is the perfect example of what it means to be a true human. That's why we're going to spend time in Mark. So you can see it. We asked you the previous weeks during the uh, Miraculous Beginning series that if you were ready to meet the Messiah in new ways. The gift is that the birth of Christ at Christmas brings for you not only salvation, that's true, and we celebrate that every Sunday with communion, but the gift is it brings a new purpose, a new vocation for your life. It doesn't mean you stop doing what you're doing. It just means now you have a new purpose to catch people. That's it. By the way you love them. By the way you talk to them. By the way you ask questions. Some of you are bold. And don't mind jumping into the theological discussions with people. Some of you don't know how to do that. It's okay. It doesn't matter. When you begin to reach out into the lives of people and love them well, you are starting that journey of catching people with fishing. When you follow Jesus, he teaches you all that you need to catch people by grace. So with Christmas just around the corner, who are you catching? 
clean kitchen. Father, thank you for thank you for giving us a gift of an entirely new purpose. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the gift, the privilege of reflecting your glory to the world around us, to those we love, to those we care about, to those we just meet for the first time, Lord. Thanks for not only desiring to use us, but being willing to show your glory through us, sinful people. Father, we are sorry for being sinful, and yet we are so grateful that you you use us to reveal your glory to the people we care the most about. This season, Lord, as we head towards Christmas, help us, Lord, to catch people. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and uh, get the offering. We have no ushers, so we need two or three guys, men and women, to go back and, and uh, get the offering baskets. So just back there screaming for help. So... Um, uh, thank you for being generous. That's what it looks like from my per perspective. Only you know if you are or not. If you're not, just change it, okay? Just change it. Before you put money in, just stop and say, Lord, thank you for the privilege of doing this. Use this money well, because you bless us. Thank you for that. get ready to take communion. If you would like to serve either the bread or the cup, just come forward. If you've never done it before, just come up and stand next to somebody. They'll show you how to do it. And if you would like to pray with people, find a spot up here. And if people need prayer, they're going to come along and pray. You know, when the whole, the whole concept of the good news has two sides to it. One is the side that people hear. And then behind the curtain is what actually happens. So when you look at the sermons of Peter and Paul, what are they saying? We found the Messiah. We touched him. We ate with him. He loves you. And so the presentation has to do with love. Once you accept Christ, remember I told you that you don't know what you're, the bargain you're walking into? You don't know what you're getting into, do you? Praise God for that. Most of us might hesitate. Once you do, then 
you step behind the curtain and you begin to make sense of what happened. And what happened is what we do, what we celebrate right now together as a faith community. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body given for you. I sacrificed myself for you. Remember me. So when you come forward, somebody will say, this is the body of Christ given for you. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant. Finally, what we waited for for a long, long time has happened. A new covenant of forgiveness. God's love. That's what this means. He shed his blood to bring about the new covenant. When you come forward, somebody will say, this is a body, uh, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's remember the Lord in this way. And when you come forward, if you want to pray, stop and pray with one of us. I'm right here in the middle. We love to pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for placing someone in our lives to catch us so that we could go catch others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come celebrate communion.
Okay, as the week unfolds, <clears throat> all right, let's just, let's just say the truth. We're all sinful, okay? You're a sinful people just like Peter, right? Am I right? Are you sinful? Oh, amen. Yeah, I love it. All right, get used to it. It's just the way life is. You know, wish it wasn't that way. We have to wait for that part to be taken care of. But that's okay. What did God say to Peter when he said, I am a sinful man? What did he say? What did he say? Do not be afraid. That's the God that we serve. Unlike every other God and every other religion, we are unique. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's okay. Ask yourself each day, as the Spirit reminds you, who am I supposed to catch? Many of you won't even know the answer to the question. That's okay. Because the Lord, He knows how to make it, reveal it. Maybe it's somebody to help. Maybe it's somebody to love. Somebody that needs your help. Somebody needs your attention. I don't know. You'll figure it out. That's between you and the Lord. Who are you supposed to catch? And when you, when you start that process of catching, remember to show grace. Don't be afraid. Have a great week. Go in peace. Thank you.